Jonathan Harker's Journal, Captain Shorthand, 3 May, Blistritz. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on 1st May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place, from the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walk through the streets. I feared to go very far from the station, as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east. The most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs, everyone, and happy Halloween. I'm your host, Kenneth, and that's right. I'm releasing this episode on the spookiest day of the year, and I couldn't think of a more appropriate book to feature than Bram Stoker's Dracula. So grab some candy corn or the Halloween treat of your choice, sit back, relax, and join me as we embark on the hunt to take down the nefarious Count Dracula. Dracula may be the most famous vampire, but he isn't the first iteration of the undead creature. Dracula made his first appearance in Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, but blood-sucking demons had been around in folklore long before that, for at least about 800 years. Slavic folklore created the word vampire, or upir in Old Russian, which was first used in the 11th century. Vampires predated Christianity's arrival in the region, and folk stories about them continued despite the church's attempt to wipe out pagan beliefs. Vampiric stories originated from misunderstandings of diseases like rabies and the decomposition process of the body. During decomposition, gases swelling in the body and blood running from the mouth could make a corpse look like it had just been alive and was feeding. Fears surrounding these phenomena prompted the people of the region to adopt strange burial customs. They started burying bodies with garlic or poppy seeds and would even stake, burn, or mutilate the corpse to prevent it from becoming undead. In the 18th century, vampire lore spread from Serbia when the country was caught in the middle of the conflict with the Habsburg monarchy and the Ottoman Empire. Austrian soldiers and officials observed the strange burial rituals of the region, and their reports were widely publicized. Vampire hysteria got so out of control that the Austrian empress sent her own personal physician to scientifically debunk the myth of the vampire. But by then, vampire lore had already spread into Western culture. In 1819, John William Polidori published The Vampire, and Joseph Sheridan Lee Fanu published Carmilla in 1872. This book had a big impact on our Irish author, Bram Stoker. Stoker was born on November 8, 1847, 
the third of Abraham Stoker and Charlotte Thornley's seven children. Stoker was bedridden with an unknown illness until he was seven years old when he made a complete recovery and even went on to excel as an athlete in school. During his childhood years, his mother told Stoker folk stories and true horror stories based on her own life experiences. One that stands out is her story of what it was like living through an outbreak of cholera in 1832. She described cholera victims being buried alive in mass graves and communities barring entry to anyone suspected of having cholera. It's truly terrifying stuff, and it's very reminiscent of the early period of the COVID-19 pandemic. If your edition of Dracula includes Charlotte's story about the cholera outbreak in the appendix of the book, I highly encourage you to take some time to read it. It's just as scary, if not more so, than the novel Dracula itself. Speaking of the appendix and book structure, I'm going to go off on a brief tangent. One of my pet peeves with classic literature is that there is usually an introduction to the book. Most of the time it's by a university professor or expert of that nature. More often than not, these introductions spoil plot points of the book without warning and are clearly intended for audiences who have already read the book. I've never understood why these introductions are not included as afterwards, but I do have to commend this edition of Dracula that I read and checked out from the library for at least putting a clear spoiler warning at the beginning of the introduction of this book. Beyond that, I also enjoyed appendix inclusions of letters Stoker wrote to American poet Walt Whitman, in which he basically fanboys out all over his works, and Winston Churchill, who read and loved Stoker's Dracula. The book also includes an interesting essay Stoker wrote titled The Censorship of Fiction. It definitely gives you some insight on his mindset, and his approach to what would be considered appropriate in fictionalized books and narratives. Anyway, back to Stoker himself. Stoker became interested in theater and worked as a critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. In 1876, he wrote a favorable review of Henry Irving's Hamlet. Irving invited Stoker to dinner, and they became quick, good friends, with Stoker most certainly growing to see Irving as one of his idols. Stoker went on to become the acting manager and then business manager of Irving's Lyceum Theatre in London. This position allowed Stoker entry into London's high society, where he met the likes of celebrities such as Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Stoker married Florence Balcombe in 1878. Balcombe had formerly been seeing Oscar Wilde, the author and playwright. Stoker and his wife had one child, Irving Noel Thornley Stoker, one year after their marriage. Stoker died in London on April 20th, 1912. 
When the silent film Nosferatu was released in 1922, Florence Stoker sued the filmmakers because she had neither been asked for permission for the adaptation nor paid any royalty. The case dragged on for years, but was finally resolved in the widow's favor in 1925. Florence Stoker demanded that all negatives and prints of the film be destroyed, and only one single print survived this destruction. The first authorized film version of Dracula came out in 1931, starring Bela Lugosi. The suit over Nosferatu helped propel Stoker's Dracula novel back into pop culture, and the vampire has remained a staple of horror and, in more recent decades, young adult fiction since then. I'm going to take a short break here, but when I come back, I will begin the hunt for Dracula and discuss some of the novel's major themes and its style. Stay tuned. Welcome back to this episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. I'm your host, Kenneth. On today's Halloween episode, I'm discussing the quintessential vampire novel, Dracula. When the book was first published in 1897, it cost six shillings and was bound in yellow cloth and titled in red letters. Stoker's mother was extremely proud of his work, mentioning it on the same level as Frankenstein. Even if you haven't read the book itself, most people are familiar with the basic story. Count Dracula decides to make his move from his castle in Transylvania to feast on fresh blood in England, and he targets a couple of young women whose perspective we read from in the novel. Dr. Van Helsing, the classic vampire hunter, and the suitors of these young women team up to hunt down and kill Dracula once and for all. So it's a battle of wits between our crew of light and the ultimate dark, undead monster. Stoker wrote Dracula as an epistolary novel, so the whole book is narrated through a series of documents such as journals, newspaper clippings, and telegrams. At first, I thought this would dull the novel and impede any buildup of suspense and horror, but it actually does the opposite and heightens it in most cases. In the end, this collection of diary entries and other notes comes together like a compelling nonfiction portfolio of evidence being presented in a court of law against Dracula and all vampires. Another effect of this writing style is Stoker gives readers access to the same event from multiple perspectives. Consequently, there isn't just one character readers sympathize with. And sure, there are boring moments like characters listing out train schedules, but there are also cool, creepy encounters like seeing Dracula climbing up the walls of his castle like a lizard, or the arrival of a ghost ship, and even funny moments like our gentleman characters plotting how to break into a stranger's house in the middle of town in broad daylight by hiring a professional locksmith. Stoker presents a ton of themes and symbols that readers can unpack in Dracula. Of course, there is the gender and sexuality, but readers can also find passages 
about technology and modernization and foreignness in the other. Those last two themes jump out immediately in chapter one when Jonathan writes, quote, It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they to be in China? Throughout the novel, Stoker obsesses over train travel. And at the time, it was one of the most modern ways of transportation. So it stands out that this first mention of it in the book compares the East unfavorably to the West. Once Dracula migrates to England, the book can definitely be read as invasion literature. The genre of invasion literature arouses national imaginations and anxieties about hypothetical invasions by foreign powers and quote-unquote racial pollution. What Dracula does to human bodies is not terrifying because he kills them. What's really horrifying under the lens of invasion literature is he transforms the bodies he murders into the racial other by turning them into vampires. So picking up on the theme of technology, it's fascinating to pair it up against the theme of religion. The crew of light rely on modern technology for the time, such as blood transfusions, telegrams, and phonographs to keep ahead of Dracula's evil schemes. At the same time, Dr. Van Helsing comes equipped with crucifixes and even consecrated communion wafers to ward off Dracula and other vampires. Technology gets them a leg up on Dracula, but it does fail them on occasion, such as when a telegram doesn't go through or something like that. And at a certain point, even the blood transfusions stop being a viable option to save people under Dracula's influence. However, their religious tools are constant and only fail when someone unsuspectingly removes them from their proper place. It's also interesting to compare blood and communion in terms of the Blessed Sacrament that Van Helsing uses for protection versus the corrupt, twisted, unholy version of communion that is vampirism. The two are like opposite poles of a magnet. Spiritual law dictates that they can never come into contact with each other. So that's a broad, very broad overview of Dracula for you. And I really don't want to go any further into specific plot points to avoid spoiling anything. Yes, it's a classic and there might be a little more leeway to do that since this came out in the 1800s. But... Even I didn't know the specific plot details of some parts of this book, and I don't want to spoil the surprise for any first-time readers. So I'd say it's about time to give out my rating for this book. My scale from best to worst is bookshelf-worthy by library, sparknotes, or pass. This honestly surprised me, but... I'm going to award Dracula by Bram Stoker the rating of bookshelf worthy. Dracula has certainly earned its place as a fixture of classic horror fiction, 
And again, honestly, it surprised me. The first section of the book in Dracula's castle was riveting, eerie, and suspenseful. Once Dracula arrives in England, events that follow have a powerful air of tragic desperation. There are so many themes that can be singled out in the novel, whether it's the concept of the new woman or taking action versus taking a passive role. The characters are memorable for the most part, and I didn't even have time to touch on the mysterious psychiatric patient Renfield. And (laughs) there is so much going on with his character. What are his motivations? How is Dracula affecting him? What part does he play versus our crew of light? It's so interesting. Although Dracula himself essentially takes a back seat after the first handful of chapters in the book, he's always a menacing presence in the story. If I had to give like one major thing I didn't enjoy as much, like I said, I was hooked on the first handful of chapters in Dracula's Castle. Great stuff there. Um, there's a bit of a dip in momentum in the next chapter after we leave Dracula's Castle, but it picks up again pretty quickly after that. Um, but then I'd say like right before the final encounter towards the end of the book, the whole process of laying the trap for Dracula takes a little too long and could have been shortened. Uh, I want to say I don't have the book with me right now since I returned it to the library, but off the top of my head, I'm guessing the book is about 400 pages, I want to say. Um So just really condensing that whole part about laying the trap for Dracula and really coming up with a solid plan probably could have been shortened, I don't know, by 25, 50 pages just to really uh, speed things up there at the end and get us to that final battle. And if you're coming to me with the question... Okay, Kenneth, I only have time to read one book this Halloween. Should I read Dracula? I would probably ask you if you've read any Shirley Jackson. And if you haven't, I would honestly recommend reading The Haunting of Hill House instead of Dracula. If you only had a choice of one book to read as like your spooky read for the season. I read The Haunting of Hill House. I've now seen the show on Netflix It is honestly one of the scariest books I've ever read, even scarier than Dracula. And it has stuck with me. And yeah, if if you only have a choice of one, definitely go with Haunting of Hill House. But if your concept of a vampire has been shaped exclusively by Twilight or even maybe Interview with the Vampire... I invite you to seriously consider giving Dracula a go. It's in the public domain, so you can easily find the text, the full text, or audiobook versions for free online. Don't miss out on this classic. Don't let the epistolary format intimidate you or make you think it's dull and boring. There's a lot going on in this book. 
It's a classic for a reason. Give it a shot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs. I invite you to jump on to social media and follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at BookBlurbs19. You can also send an email to BookBlurbs19 at gmail.com. And you can record a voice message at www.anchor.fm slash bookblurbs. Please do me a favor and leave a rating for book blurbs on whichever podcasting platform you're using to help grow the podcast and bring it to more people. I'm your host, Kenneth, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Book Blurbs. Stay safe out there and happy Halloween. <laughs>